Because of sin and pain can give all of our praise and adoration to God. And so he's able to appear in rooms so he can kind of go through matter. So he, he could come through walls. He just kind of appears with them. Sean preached last week to the, the story on the two guys on the road to Emmaus that um, right after they realized who Jesus was, bam, he just disappeared. So he can do some things in this glorified body that we can't do. He could even camouflage himself. So they're, the guys on the road to Emmaus, they don't, they're with him for the whole afternoon. They don't even realize who he is. Uh, when Mary first sees Jesus, she thinks he's the gardener. She doesn't realize that it's Jesus. So he had the ability to kind of, you know, camouflage himself from people and, and have them recognize who he is. So his glorified body is different. And this is not, he hasn't even gone fully to be at the right hand of God the Father yet. So we can look forward to bodies that are going to be better than ours. So verses 41 to 43, I want to read those, uh, or pick up in verse 40. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So we got to keep in mind, the disciples, this is Sunday night, okay? It was Friday afternoon that Jesus died. He breathed his last breath, and he was dead. And they saw him being taken down from the cross as a dead man. They saw him go be put in the tomb as a dead man. It's been only a smidge over 48 hours, okay? It was Friday afternoon. We're now at Sunday night. So they had 36 plus hours of kind of total utter despair. They were with Jesus for three years. Probably they're struggling. Was that just a complete waste of my time? Did I blow three years of my life on this guy that I thought was going to be the Savior, and now he's dead? You know, they're, they're kind of vacillating between this their joy has been crushed, their hope has been crushed, and, and everything they thought that was going to happen, they think is off the table now. And then they start to get rumors Sunday morning that Jesus is alive. So we see in the early part of chapter 24, the women go, the angel appears to the women. So you get Mary, you get Joanna, you get these women, they see the angels, they run, they tell the disciples. Then Jesus appears to Peter, and Peter tells them, and then these two guys from the road to Emmaus, they show up and they're like, hey, we were just hanging out with Jesus. And so they're still struggling. And then Jesus appears in front of them. And it says in verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy, and they were marveling. So they're seeing Jesus and their minds are kind of blown, but they're still struggling with some unbelief. And I think it's easy sometimes to want to kick the disciples when they're down but they've been on an emotional kind of tidal wave of low, high, low, high, low. And so they're just struggling to come to terms with this. And as I was thinking through this part of the text, it reminded me uh, when my, Robin and I, my wife and I, all of our family is mostly in Texas. So we try to go home once or twice a year to visit everybody. And so when our oldest daughter was about two and a half years old, uh, our youngest daughter wasn't born yet, Robin went to Texas for two weeks, and I couldn't afford to be off work that long, so she went for a week, and then I went and joined her so I could be there for a week. And I don't travel really for my job uh, much ever, and so I had really at this point, I don't know if I had ever been away from Katie Beth. If I had, it maybe been no more than like a night. 
So while I, I land in Dallas, I walk through the airport, I go into the luggage area, Robin catches sight of me, and she points, she points me out to Katie Beth. And as soon as Katie Beth takes me, she takes off into a dead sprint. As soon as she sees me, she just starts running. And you know how kids run with their arms out? She's running like this. This is actually how Byron runs too, if you've never seen it. So she's running, she's running like this, arms straight out, just running full speed. So I squat down and she runs in, like doesn't even stop, just runs straight in and I grab her and pick her up and she's just squeezing me and holding me so tight. And so I go over to Robin. I've been on the plane for two and a half hours. I really have to go to the restroom. So I'm like, hey, I gotta go to the restroom. I try to hand her Katie Beth. She won't let go. She's just like clutching me. And so I take her to the restroom. We come back out get my luggage. We go to the car and finally I'm like, look, it's the law. I have to strap you into your car seat. You have to let go of me now. But in her little two-year-old mind, she had never been away from me. And she didn't know if she let go, maybe she wouldn't see me for a long time again. And the disciples here, they're in the very infancy of, of their faith and believing in a resurrected Jesus. They're, they, the church hasn't even really kind of officially started yet. And so their understanding of what Jesus has done is still coming into focus. And so, you know, God is patient with them and he brings them along, even though they're still disbelieving after hearing from multiple sources, after seeing Jesus with their own eyes. All right, let's go on to uh, verses. Now, verses 44 to 53, there's kind of two different sections here. We don't know if all this went down on Sunday night or if some of this happened later. We know after Jesus rose from the dead, he was around for about 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven and, and took his rightful spot near God the Father. So um, we don't know exactly when these happened, but we know they happened nonetheless. So Jesus is about to explain the Old Testament to them. So verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So I'm going to stop right there. It's a really important verse. It can be easy to skip over and go through. But Jesus is very clearly teaching that the whole Bible is about him. That God's plan from the very beginning was to redeem his people and was to do it through a perfect Savior. So he breaks the Old Testament down into, into three different sections. The Law of Moses, so kind of the first five books of the Bible that talk a lot about creation, God's people being established as a nation. Then he talks about the law of the prophets. And then he talks about the Psalms, or you can think of the wisdom literature. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those books. And he's saying all of that stuff, it's not a random collections of writings. It's not a bunch of weird stories. All of that stuff points to me. All of that points to God's plan from the very beginning of creation to bring redemption through a perfect Savior. So he's opening their minds, and he wants us to see that the whole Bible is full of God's main narrative, his single purpose, which is to bring salvation and redemption to his people. He, I love that song that we sang today. He, he's going to put death in its grave. That's what Jesus did. So we see it very early, right after Adam and Eve sinned. You get this reference to a snake bruising the Savior's heel. That's Satan. Uh, uh, that's Jesus dying on the cross, but then you get the heel crushing the head of the snake. That's Jesus fully destroying once and for all sin and death. 
and providing salvation and eternity for his people. So again, when you go to the Old Testament, go with it with that lens on, that this, all of this points to God's sovereignty. And this should give you a lot of hope because a lot of things happened up to the point of Jesus being crucified. A lot of things happened that could seem where God was not on the scene or was out of control. And all throughout history, there have, there have always been moments of crisis. So when I was growing up in the 80s, I was born in the late 70s. When I was growing up in the 80s, it was the Cold War. Everybody was really worried if we went to war with Russia, would we lose and all be speaking Russian? Okay, so now you have North Korea or Syria or you have, you know, are Saudi Arabia and Iran going to go to war? Or maybe you're just distressed about our own political climate. It can be easy to to want to put hope in the wrong things or to want to give up that God is still sovereignly working. But there were lots of times where God's people seemed to be um, abandoned or seemed to be helpless and God would come in and rescue them and he would save them. So God is always sovereignly orchestrating his purposes throughout history. Now, verses 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So the only way, the only hope we have of understanding God's word is him opening our eyes, is the Holy Spirit speaking to us truth through the scriptures. Because we are people who are born under sin, we're born under a curse, and God has infinite majesty. He has infinite glory, meaning it literally doesn't end. And so we don't have any hope of understanding the truths of the Scripture without the Holy Spirit. Um, and Jesus is making it very clear here. So when we approach the Word, we need to remember it's the, it's the inerrant. That means it has no errors. It, it's the infallible. That means it's perfect. It's the inerrant, um, perfect Word of God. And so we may read things that seem counterintuitive to us. We may read things that are hard to understand. That is part of the natural process because it should be alien and foreign to us because we're born as God-haters, as people who want to run from God. And when he saves us, he brings us into his family. He ushers us in with love. And so he's making it very clear here that there's only one way. It says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer or must suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name of all the nations, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, he's making it very clear here, very clear. There is only one way to God. We may like to espouse there are more, there's more than one way to God or there are multiple ways to God or all roads lead to God, which has a ton of logical errors inside of it. But Jesus is telling us there is only one way to God, and there has to be only one way to God because of sin. God is a righteous God, and he cannot be righteous if he overlooks sin. He cannot be righteous if he counts offenses as not offenses. They have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with with bloodshed. And so Jesus coming to die and his blood to cover our sin has to be the only way to get to God. If it's not, then Jesus' death is not significant. And the command to take the gospel to the whole world does not have any meaning if there are multiple ways to God. And it's really easy, especially in our postmodern culture, to, to, um, to want to believe 
not necessarily believers, but sometimes believers, but for others to want to believe, no, it's too narrow-minded to say there's only one way to God. Um, but there's not. There are lots of things in life that there's only one way to do it. And, and there aren't other ways that, you know, you can do it. And so salvation is one that Jesus is being very clear. Jesus himself, the one who earned salvation, the God of the universe, who's omnipotent, omnipresent, he is the creator of everything, is making it very clear that his death and resurrection, that's the only way to make peace and to get to God. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. So as I mentioned earlier, the disciples were not, you know, the most um, impressive group of people on the surface. On the surface, However, they were eyewitnesses. They had been with Jesus for three years. They had, they had, you know, eaten meals with him. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen miracles. They'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him make lame people walk, deaf people hear. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. Not a person, multiple people. They had seen people come back from the dead, okay? This is like freaky Hollywood stuff. They had seen lots of crazy things that Jesus had done. They knew he had power. And they were his eyewitnesses. But again, these are adults. So there's no like child prodigy hopes here. Uh, They're not necessarily um, prominent people. Most of them did not have power or wealth or position in Roman or Jewish society. Um, They're not, you know, the ivory leaguers of their day for the most part. They're former fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and people like that. But they were the, the eyewitnesses, again, because he's going to be the one to do the work, he's going to get all the glory. He has all the power. He doesn't need a certain amount of talent pool, or he doesn't need you to earn a certain amount of um, knowledge to be able to be used by him. And today, we're not necessarily eyewitnesses, um, but we, we, in a way, we are, because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the literal essence of God that comes and lives in our hearts. And so we experience his conviction of sin. We experience his joy in understanding the truths of the scripture. We experience his joy of seeing other people put their faith in Jesus and be redeemed from sin. We experience joy in community when we hear people speak, when God uses the Holy Spirit to to speak through people truth in our lives, to pray for us. And so we are firsthand eyewitnesses in the fact that we've we have communed with the real Spirit of God. We haven't seen Jesus face to face, but we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that same power that God used to begin the church is still at work in us to continue the work of the church. And you ask how I know. Well, verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, The power from on high, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit in John 6. Sorry, John 16, verses 7 through 15. This is what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Meaning Satan and sin have been defeated. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority 
But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. And therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying it's to our advantage that he leaves and that we have the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the outpouring of the love in the, in, of, of God the Father and God the Son. It's, it's the, the representation of that love, the essence of who God is, that comes into our hearts, that's full of power. So that should be really encouraging for us, that God's literally putting himself inside of us. Okay, so verse 50 through 53, we get the ascension. Again, we don't know if this happened um, this time, you know, on this Sunday, and he did another ascension later, or if this is at the end of where it's referenced in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus ascends. But let's pick it up there in verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So he puts up his hands, and he blesses them. Now, these are not just mere well wishes, just like the peace to you wasn't this kind of passive greeting. Again, Jesus' hands had real power. He had healed people. He had raised people from the dead. He had spoken truth and saved people. So he, he speaks his blessing over them. This is, a, this is a powerful thing. Then verse 51, it says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, we don't know exactly um, how, how this happened. I don't know if he was like flying. I don't know if he's kind of levitating and then he disappears. I don't know if he disappeared. I don't know Have he made it to the clouds. We don't really know. But he ascends. They, they literally see him ascend and go into heaven. And what does that mean that he went into heaven? Well, all throughout the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. So he's seated on the throne of all creation basically ruling over creation. Ephesians 1.20 tells us that. Romans 8.34. There are five or six, you know, references that you can find that talk about Jesus being seated right next to God the Father. And we also know that he's going to come back, that he's accomplished salvation. There's a, there's a period of time after that, and then he'll come back and usher everyone into eternity. And it says in Acts 1.11, these, after Jesus ascends, this is right after the ascension. If you go to Acts 1, 6 through 11, you get the story of him ascending. These angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So it's a reference that he's still in control and he's going to come back at the appointed time. We don't know when that is. It could be soon. It could be hundreds of years. It could be thousands of years from now. But the 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 responsibility of us as believers is the same, to pursue God, to love him with all of our hearts, and to take the gospel to those around us and to the ends of the earth. So verses 52 and 53, we get this real contrasting of the disciples. It says, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So remember, Jesus had left them before. He died that Friday afternoon. And what happened? Were they rejoicing and praising God continuously in the temple? No, it was a very different picture. They were, they were struggling to find any hope. They were desperate. They were fearful for their lives. They're hiding in locked rooms. They're, they're hopeless. So why is it this time when Jesus leaves them 
that it says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So you get this huge contrast of desperation turns to hope, fear turns to joy, disbelief turns to praise. So why, why this huge difference now in how they respond when Jesus leaves them this time versus the first time? Well, a big part of the difference is they've been with Jesus. They have literally communed with him and they understand what his purpose is and they understand who he is and that he is the redeemer. He is the salvation for all humankind throughout history. And so God, it says earlier in the verse that God opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They've communed with Jesus. They've spent time understanding the truths of God and we can't help but be full of hope and joy when we do that. That's the difference as to why they're no longer fearful and hopeless and, dis- and desperate. They've been with the Savior. And that's why the disciplines of our faith are so important to us. It's not just that we want to fight sin, we do want to fight sin, but reading the Word, communing with believers, having them speak truth into your lives, having them pray for you, pouring your heart out to the Savior in prayer, memorizing Scripture, meditating on it, Those things are so important because our hearts cannot exist in a vacuum. They will love something. And we will either love sin and we will love ourselves and and pursue things that are opposite of God or we will love God. And so by communing and fellowshipping with him, it pushes the fear and the anxiety and the sin out and it replaces it with joy and hope in Christ. Again, our hearts cannot exist in a vacuum. We will all love God something. And so the only way to really increase in joy and hope is to pursue God. And that's why they're able to continually, it says, be in the temple blessing God. All right, so that's the text. I think there are three really important things in the text that I want us to walk away from. The first is that God does extraordinary things through ordinary believers. That's actually one of our maxims as a, as a church at TCC is that God does extraordinary things to ordinary believers. We may struggle with doubts, but we must struggle with doubts in a healthy way, or we may fall trapped to the enemy. We may fall into a trap of the enemy. And finally, I want us to see that God is patient with us. So let's start with this first one, that God does extraordinary things to ordinary believers. So um, as I mentioned, these disciples, they're pretty normal people, not people of mass influence, not people of... Uh, mass talents, mass capital, mass abilities. They're pretty normal people, but God's going to do the work through them. And if we look through the history of the the church for the last 2,000 years, it's normal, ordinary people that God has done the bulk of the work through. So I read um, C.S. Lewis's book a couple months ago, The Screwtape Letters, one of his books called The Screwtape Letters. It's not the most encouraging book in the world, but it does a really good job of helping understand just how vile and maniacal and malicious the enemy really is. And and Lewis, I read in a couple articles, I think he said it was the most difficult book that he ever wrote. And it's not it's not a really long book, but it's it's just a hard way to he's trying to think of uh, how to deceive and and destroy people through the eyes of Satan. Um, But one of the things that struck me, it's not the point of the book, but one of the things that struck me as I read the book is Lewis had this just brilliant mind with this vast knowledge of theology and literature and philosophy and history. And, And I thought halfway through the book, I could study 
those four topics the rest of my life and not even get halfway to where this guy got. And I started to feel a little discouraged because you can tell he just, he has a really good grasp on, the, on, on famous philosophers like Socrates and Kant and, and other guys. And he, he understands through the different periods of history what people believe to be true and how they approach God and what they valued and the deceptions that Satan had taken hold in different generations. And so as you read it, it just it's not the point of the book, but again, it just clearly soaks through how, how much he understood these things. But as I continued reading the book, God really encouraged me that um, any ability C.S. Lewis had, it came from God directly anyway. And we should celebrate um, God's use of people like C.S. Lewis and Martin Luther King and Martin Luther and St. Augustine and, and Billy Graham and those kinds of people. We should celebrate what they do. But that's not how God does the bulk of his work. The bulk of his work is through people like me. And I thought, if everybody's like C.S. Lewis, there's nobody like me to read C.S. Lewis's book and be really encouraged. And so, uh, so you're welcome. So, um, so God does the bulk of the work that he did. And it really started to hit me that we should hold up, you know, people who have gone forward and have done, God has used to do great things in the kingdom, but it was God working through them to do those things and again, the bulk of the reason why any of us are here, why any of us believe in Jesus, it's because of the work of normal, ordinary believers. It's not because of the work of, you know, a few through history who've been able to make major impacts in their generations. And so don't leave the text feeling uh, discouraged or feeling like your life doesn't matter. God has a perfect plan for you at this point in history of his part of his perfect redemptive plan. And so whether you feel like that is large or small, it doesn't matter. He's working his plans to your purpose. I mean, to his purpose, not to your purpose. That'd be bad. All right, number two, we may struggle with doubts, but we must struggle in a healthy way or we may fall trapped to the enemy. So um, the disciples are doubting here. It says clearly in verse 41, while they still disbelieved. It doesn't say, and they disbelieved, still disbelieved. So they've been disbelieving and they're still disbelieving. So they're having some doubts here. And we may have things that we struggle with uh, that are doubts. And I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind as we think about doubts. One is our faith is in a huge infinite God. We are finite beings who get a, a the scripture talks about we're like a mist or a vapor. We get a very small time here on earth. Even if you live 100 years, it's a very small time in the, in, throughout the history of eternity. And we're tainted by sin. So not only do we have finite abilities, we have minds that are already, you know, warped. Um, if you think about a wheel that's warped, it doesn't roll straight. So we already have two things working against us. So we have this infinite God and there's no way that we're going to understand everything about him or everything in his word while we're here on earth. Now, there is a lot that we can understand. There's a lot that we can find joy in. But we're going to spend eternity, and this should fuel our joy, we're going to spend eternity searching out the things of God. We're going to spend eternity increasing in joy because we're going to understand more of who God is and how glorious he is and how infinite and amazing his attributes are. So there will be some mystery that exists in our hearts and in our minds while we're here. But it's really important that we understand the difference between mystery, which, as it says in Hebrews, 
1.11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the Bible is telling us, if we could see everything and understand everything, it wouldn't take faith. So there is going to be some faith where we have to trust what God is doing and how he's working. But there may be seasons where you're really doubting things, doubting, you know, fundamental, maybe doctrines of the faith. And how we handle those seasons is really important because it can really test our faith and we can come through as refined by fire or sometimes we can get chewed up by the doubts and get consumed by them. So the disciples are struggling with doubt here. It's, as, as again, as I said, it says they still disbelieved. They're struggling with doubt, but I, know, I want you to notice a couple ways in how they handle those doubts. So first of all, they're still in community. They're still meeting together, okay? So when the women in the early part of verse chapter 24, when they see the angels and they find out that Jesus has risen from the dead, they run to the disciples. And so it says they went, in verse 10 it says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So they went, it doesn't say it, but it's implied here that the apostles are all together. They go find the apostles, they're all together, and they tell them, hey, this is what the angel said, Jesus has risen from the dead. Then later, the two men on the road to Emmaus, they come, they find out who Jesus is, they go to the disciples, and the disciples are all together again. So we see that they're still in community, they're still meeting together, and then when Jesus appears to them, they're all together, and he, te- you know, he tells them, see my hands, my feet, can I have some fish? So they're all still together. So one of the first things the enemy likes to do when we're struggling with doubt is try to separate us from our community, okay? And so that's one of the oldest tricks that he does. I thought Travis did a great job a couple weeks ago of saying Satan's oldest but most effective trick is deception. I think that's true. This might be number two. He wants to pull us away and isolate us. And I've noticed in my time at TCC, and especially as an elder, a lot of times people do struggle with doubts real doubts, and there, there's a tendency a lot of time to pull, to pull away um, from community. And, and a lot of times the doubts are, are, can be intense. Um, I mean, in my time here, I've known people that have struggled with, is God's, how, how can we trust God's word? Is God, does he really exist? Um, people who've struggled with the age of the earth, is it thousands, millions, billions of years old? Um, people who have struggled with, you know, to find hope in their life or in their parenting or in their marriage and, and doubting, you know, is, is God listening or doubting with God's sovereignty and the existence of evil. And there are probably other things that I've forgotten. These are real, you know, heavy things. And what Satan wants to do is he wants to pull us away and isolate us from our community. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen on like National Geographic or the Discovery Channel when there's like five lions and they're chasing a whole herd of water buffaloes and they're all going one direction and then they switch direction and everybody switches except one water buffalo that didn't get the message and that's the one that dies. That's the one that gets attacked by the lions because he's not in, he's not in his community. And, and uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But be alert, be sober-minded. And so our tendency a lot of times is to want to pull away and think that people won't understand or they'll condemn us or they'll judge us. But it's in those safe havens of community that you need to express those doubts. Sometimes you need people to carry you along when you can't carry yourself. 
You need them to pray for you. You need them to pour out their hearts to the Savior on your behalf. You need them to speak truth and life into your heart and to help warn you. So the disciples, we see them as fearful as they are, as disbelieving as they are, they're still all staying together and trying to figure things out. Um, The second thing is, when you struggle with doubts, there can be a tendency to want to um, pull away from God and his word. And that is, again, the enemy is trying to isolate you. And sometimes you want to listen to anybody or anything except God and his word. And so the reason the disciples were changed, the reason their their doubts were cured, is because they communed with Jesus. He opened their minds to the truth. He opened their hearts to understand who God was. I remember in college, there was a year that I really struggled with the doctrine of the Trinity, and I wasn't sure if I believed that it was true. And um, by God's grace, I didn't change anything. I stayed in my community, continued to, to meet with small group, um, continued to, to read the word and pray. And through that year, God brought me through that. And by studying passages in the New Testament that, that tie um, the three different uh, persons of God together in Genesis, God really restored that belief. And it's, it's as firm in my heart as any belief in, in biblical um, doctrine that I hold. But that year was, was a hard year. Um, but by God's grace, I didn't change anything in my, in my life. And people were able to continue. And God, through his word, was able to continue to bring me along and reassure me that that was true and that I could believe in it. And I could, you know, base my life on who he was, that he wasn't lying. So again, in, in my time here, especially as an elder, I've seen the tendency that when you have these seasons of doubt, it can be very tempting to want to, to remove yourself from God and remove yourself from others, and you're falling exactly into the trap that Satan wants. It's important for us to, to again, to pursue those disciplines because that's how God will, that's how he will speak to us. That's how he'll reach us. That's how he'll change our doubting, as, as the New Testament talks about. He'll refine our hearts so that the gold is pure and, and the dross or the, the imperfections are burned away. And so the, the thing I want to close on is, um, after I throw my papers on the ground, is uh, God is patient with us. So look back at the text. You see four different times in this short period of time that the disciples are told that Jesus is alive, and, and they really struggle. So the first one is you get these women They've seen the angels. They're told Jesus is alive. They go tell the disciples. Then Jesus appears directly to Peter. He tells them. Then these two guys from the road that were on the road to Emmaus, they come and they tell, hey, we just spent the whole afternoon with Jesus. He's alive. And we were despairing. And he he taught us all about the Old Testament and how it points to him. They're still disbelieving. Jesus is there. He's talking to them face to face, and they are still disbelieving. He's telling them to touch him, to give him some food to eat so that he can eat it, and they can see that it's not, you know, some weird imagination of their mind. But one thing to notice through all that, Jesus is very patient. So he says, peace to you. Then he asks them why they're troubled, and he tells them. He says, look, touch me. See my hands. See my feet. And then he says, give me a piece of fish. He doesn't scold them. He's not harsh with them. He understands where their hearts are, and he's bringing them along gently. God is so patient with us. He will not give up on you. He will not lose hope. He created you. 
He created you. He knows exactly how you work. So there's no way that he doesn't know how to get through to you, okay? And Philippians 1.6 tells us this. It's very clear that he won't give up, that he won't fail. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God has told us as believers that he sealed us in his kingdom. He will finish his work in us. So I pray that your hearts are full of assurance and faith in our great God and in his amazing grace. Let's pray. Jesus, I come to you right now. I thank you for Luke. Thank you for all of its richness. I thank you, Lord, that you are patient. I thank you that you don't require more than we can give, Lord, that you are the one who does the work, that you're the one who brings about the change. I thank you, Lord, that you have won the victory, that it is done. It's not a hope that we have to, to hope works out okay. We know it has worked out okay, and we know what the end result is, Lord. So I thank you for that joy. I thank you, Lord, for the believers gathered together here. Thank you for all the faithful preaching of your word through the book of Luke. Jesus, I thank you for coming, for being willing, for being the only one who could take sin away, who could conquer death, and being willing to do it and doing it. I thank you for proclaiming that truth to us. And I pray, Lord, that it will that it will change us, it will mold us, it will shape us as we go out. And I do pray, Lord, that you will bring about revival in our hearts, Lord. Pray that we'll hunger for you, we'll hunger for your word, that we'll pursue discipleship. We pray that you'll bring about revival of conversions, Lord. We long to see it in our families, in our friends, in our city, in our nation, and in our world. Be with us as we go in this time of reflection. In your name, amen.